This episode is brought to you by Murrinjai Water Drilling, a family-owned and operated team of fully licensed, insured and experienced drillers in the construction, mining and water services. They are licensed to drill and service in Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia. They ensure all water bores are installed correctly and professionally first time, every time. Learn more at murrinjaiwaterdrilling.com.au or find them on Facebook. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Matt Wood started managing Blina Station in the West Kimberley at the ripe old age of 23. In the past 13 years, he has met his wife, become a father, and grown as a manager, friend, and member of the Kimberley community. Matt and Connie recently said a fond farewell to Bliner Station, where they have called home for the past 13 and 9 years, as they make the move to manage the historic Wave Hill Station in the Northern Territory. In this episode, Matt and Connie reflect on their time at Bliner, the good, the bad, and the bloody funny. I wanted to say something at their going away party in October, but believe it or not, the idea of speaking into a microphone in a shed full of people terrifies me. So I'll say it now. Matt and Connie are two incredibly special people, as pastoralists, parents and friends. There's not many people who can say that they've left a station better than when they arrived, and I don't just mean land condition but cattle, and the culture. It's really going to suck not being able to pop out to Bliner for a visit or to join in on a muster. And of course I'll be visiting them at Wave Hill, but bloody hell, did you have to move so far away? In all seriousness, though, from my roles at the Ag Department, Central Station, and just being a part of our community, I can honestly say that we have been so lucky to have these two for as long as we have. I've learnt so much from both of them, not just about cattle and country, but about friendship and life. Okay, before I start crying, let's get into the episode. Matt and Connie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Pleasure, Steph. It's uh, Connie, this is your third time on the podcast. I'm a veteran. Yeah. And Matt, this is your debut. Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure to have you here. (laughs) And also, yes, you're welcome. All right, so we are going to talk about your time at Bliner. Um, I suppose the reason we're reflecting on it, though, is that you guys have a big move coming up. So why don't you actually start off by telling us about that? So in late January this year, our employer, Chumbuck, 
settled on Wave Hill Station over in the Northern Territory and we're relocating to manage that and uh, we're finishing up at Bliner at the end of October, which is about six weeks away. And uh, then we're packing up our gear and having another baby and a quick holiday and then we're going to roll up the shirt sleeves and start again. We've spent a lot of time at Liner getting things here how we want them and uh, onwards and upwards, another challenge awaits. So when you'd just gotten into the groove and of things and had everything the way you wanted it, you thought you'd just up and leave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah find a new challenge. It was a very tricky challenge for us and a fairly, you know, fairly tricky decision on some levels. Um, yeah. You know, We love the community and this is where our friends are, where our you know, home is, where, we, where our, you know, our relationship started, where our marriage started and where our family began. So there's some serious memories and um, we're leaving all that behind. We, you know, plan's always been go as hard as we can and get everything here ship-shaped so that we can spend some time with our kids at work. And uh, we've just got to that spot in the last couple of years, you know, leading ponies along on musters and having the kids down the yards and and then, uh, you know, we've been seriously enjoying it. But, you know, we've been uh, give, given an opportunity that just is too good to be, you know, to, to, to pass, pass up. up. And uh, it's exciting. How long have each of you been here at Bliner? So I arrived in January 2009, 13 years ago. Mm. This will be my 13th season. I came in November 2012. Nine. Three seasons. I came in Nine or ten years? Nine years. I'm ten terrible years with the years. math. Yeah. Oh, so am I. Nine. All right. Matt's well, been counting every year. Nine been, years. Matt has been counting his blessings for nine long years. Yeah, when you're in prison, you like scratch, scratch the telly on the wall. There's probably something on his side of the bed, like on his little bedside table. Survived another season. It's actually not been that bad. <laughs> Them. It's been great. <laughs> Tolerable, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, Connie and Matt are going to split up. Yeah. And then Matt's like, I thought if I accepted Wave Hill, she might stay behind, but that backfired. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> oh, oh, gosh. Well, let's go way back to the beginning then and talk about the early days here at Bliner. Mm-hmm. How did you come to be at Bliner, Matt? You're a bit of an anomaly. You came here as a very, very young manager. Yeah, I think. Um, 23, you know, still is a pretty young age to start managing. So I was a uh, head stockman with AA Company over in the Northern Territory and I sort of always planned to go planned to go contract mustering myself and I went into Jumbuck head office, so I've had a long association with them and I don't want you to tell too many people, but I'm, I'm actually a sheepy. I grew up on sheep stations on the Nullarbor Plain. Um, My dad nearly I, I, didn't let me marry him. Yeah. Um, I, I, I say that laughingly, sheep teach you great patience and uh, fortitude. And I, mean, I do not have when I've visited Raleigh Nerds. Very so difficult. I grew up on sheep stations that were owned by Jumbuck. My father managed for many, many years for them. And I worked next door to Bliner at Meter when I was a kid, when I was 18, 19. And 
I had planned to go contracting and I knew I needed to do another year or two under my belt, but I sort of really missed the Kimberley. Uh, I needed another year or two of running camps and I missed the Kimberley, so I sort of wanted to come back to the West. So I went into Jumbuck's uh, head office to take a head stockman's job and sort of walked out with a manager's job here at um, Bliner. That's what you call negotiation. <laughs> completely um, <laughs> completely not my doing. It was just a case of right place at the right time and uh, was backed in by my employer and my senior manager who, you know, who sort of saw a young fellow with a bit of energy and, um, you know, thought they'd be able to shape me into what would work well for the company. So on the one hand, I suppose it's obviously anything is a bit, there's some level of it being a bit of a gamble, but like you said, you've kind of had a lifelong association through your family with John Buck. So they, they knew the kind of family you came from, the kind of person you are, the influences in your life. So on the other hand, you know, not as much of a gamble because they knew kind of what they were getting into, I would think. No, we, you know, long association um, and, you know, we, I'd sort of been for a look around. I'd worked for the company and seen them do their, their sheep operations and their cattle operations and I'd gone and had a look around and seen how um, through my sort of jobs as a contracting, various contracting teams, I was able to see quite a few different operations working and, uh, you know, I came back with some fresh ideas as well and, uh, I, you know, appreciated some of the things that Jumbuck did really well, a lot more than I would have if I hadn't been away. So what goes through your mind when you rock up here at the ripe old age of 23 with it's a, a million-acre block and how many head of cattle were on it at the time? Oh, about 18,000, 19,000 then. And Jumbuck had been in the company for almost 20 years at that point? Uh, yeah, they'd had it. They'd oh, sorry, had sorry, Bliner, I mean, Bliner had yeah. been in the company. Yeah, they must have had it sort of 15 um, 15 to 20 years and, you know, the Bliner had always been Meter's poor brother, significantly lighter bit of country uh, and so if a bit less development had happened over here, I would say. Um, and, you know, the the place hadn't been travelling as well so the herd was a long way back from the Meter herd and, uh, you know, quite a lot of the infrastructure was, you know, a very long way back from the Meter herd. So. So, you know, a few, a few people have actually described Bliner before Jumbuck bought it as being the rubbish tip of the West Kimberley. Yep. So there was a, there was just a And I told my mum I was moving to Bliner because she'd spent a lot of time in the West Kimberley. She was like, why are you going there? So, why would you go there? Yeah. So, the, you know, there was abandoned, abandoned, uh, rubbish from previous development spread over a million acres and, uh, you know, was not a pretty sight, and Jumbuck had started getting on top of it. And uh, we, when I arrived, there was a long way to go too. And, uh, and it's come a long way, just even in the nine, like exceptionally long way in the nine years I've been here. I didn't even would never have thought. I always thought like Mita was the poor younger brother. No, <laughs> not that I know. Just because like you're yeah, because you've been with the company longer, so I just thought you were on like the better place. Like, no. Absolutely. My bad. No. Meters the uh, meters much better block. Significantly Mu- better block. Much better herd. Well, the, the foundation herd was yeah much better. Wow. Yeah. So you're 23. Rock up here. What you know? I get, first thing was um, when I drove in, uh, my partner at the time and I drove past the swamp 
and we thought, gee, there's going to be some lot of mozzies here. And then uh, I'd obviously been told about the house, but when you're 23, you don't really care that much about the house. You're a bit more interested in the other things about the station. And I'd been told there was a new house here, and I remember thinking, looking up at the sand hill here from down the edge of the swamp there, going, why the hell would they build a shed up on top of the sand hill? Makes no sense. And uh, then as we got close, we sort of realised that that was a new house, which we're in today. But it doesn't look like a shed. No, but... Did it back... It um, no, there was no just lawn the big, or garden. There was, was no lawn. A, all the lawns and the gardens from, have come from since down there, it was a shiny roof on top of the... A big oh, white roof. On top okay. of the sand hill. I just want people to know that John Buck didn't make you live in a shed because it's actually an incredible <laughs> homestead. It like, is. It is very it's beautiful. Lush. Very, it's it, a seemed, beautiful it seemed way too big to be a, a house, like, from from a distance. Well, your head stockman's house is incredible. Like, yeah, John Buck do their, the homestead development very well. Yes, they really look after you guys. Okay, so were you getting lots of input and advice from other managers or head yeah, office so or I, how I much? Was, I was led, um, you know, I was managed by Jamie Lorison, who, you know, very good friend of, of, of ours. Um, and he, he was one of the two people that sort of backed me in for the role. And I'd worked for him as a station hand when I was 18 and 19. And, you know, considering, very, and at the time he was managing Meter. He was he? managing Meter and he was the senior manager. So he was, he was steering me and, so uh, came on setting as a junior manager and, and he was guided, mentored by Jamie. Mentored by Jamie and, you know, and he, you know, he's a person who's had, you know, huge influence on my career and life. How many cartons of beer or therapy sessions do you owe Jamie Larison? Countless. Countless. So, yeah. uh, you know, there was, that Jamie's a man of few words. Um, and he uses them and chooses them very carefully, but they they always seem to sink in. Hit the mark. The, the, they seem to hit the mark pretty well, and uh, you know, forever indebted for setting me on the right track with how to manage a cattle station and how to how to go about redeveloping it. I hope he's got a few more words in the last thirteen years because he's coming back to Blina when you guys head over to Wave Hill and. I'd love to have you on the podcast, Jamie. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but it's not sounding very promising. It'll be a short one. Yeah, it'll be short. Yeah. He'll, uh, I, you know, we're, we couldn't be gladder that Jamie and yeah. Gemma are coming back to Bliner. Um, Matt's so proud to be handing blind because Jamie and Gemma, when they started at Ellendale with, with Jumbuck, when they bought. When Jumbuck first took over, they, they were here. first took over, they were here. Not at Blind. It was all run from Ellendale there then. So now it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to be able to hand back such a think, well-developed block. Yeah, I think they'll... such important people in Matt's life and my life. I think they'll, um, they'll just really appreciate it. They knew where it was 30 years ago when Jumbuck first bought it and they knew where the herd was and, you know, they'll, they'll see where it is now and they'll be pretty happy. Yeah. So, job done. Tell me about your time as a manager in the early days. So, I thought I was pretty great and... Uh, there's, you are Matt. You are sliced bread. I learned, please. I now look back. You notice that on he how wears sleeves on his shirts now. I used to. But look, then he didn't I, wear any sleeves on his shirts. He actually came in today after lunch with no sleeves on his shirt. Oh no! In pre-test. Old die hard. Um, but back then it wasn't because of pre-test. It was because of his muscles. They. So I um. You you right? It's yeah. still against <laughs> one. Sorry. Continue. So sorry. I'm, I hate myself. 
I was obviously, you know, pretty green at managing people. I think anyone at that age is, you know, make, makes a fair – I put it this way, I went through a lot of staff in my early years. I had unrealistic expectations of what was a reasonable day's work, what can be achieved, how hard we want to go. And, you know, I sort of pushed people, you know, I look back on it now and, you know, probably to the point of stupidity. Um, sort of I was incredibly motivated uh, to get Bliner ironed out and I, I sort of saw the potential here and as the director of Jumbuck, Callum McLaughlin, had told me, he, he said, this business can really work. You just need someone to, to sink their teeth into it and drive it. And Not dissimilar to what he told us about Wave Hill, actually. But I could see the... Um, I could see that it had the potential and I was just motivated to a sort of, you know, almost sort of fanatical sort of level and not everyone is driven by the same sort of things like that and I, you know, I I was pretty brutal about it and, you know, I, one thing, I think probably one of the greatest things I've since learned about managing staff is letting a win be a win. So, you know, one of those days when, when uh, everything went well and the job was all, you know, the cattle were in the right spot and they just flowed and we had a dream run and we'd be, have all that, everything we'd hoped to achieve for the day done by 2.30, 3 o'clock. You know, instead of letting that be a win and, uh, you know, some quiet jobs in the afternoon, I used to put a bloody, you know, put the auger on the bobcat and go start building gateways and box sections and, you know, extending, you know, extending fences, re fire up the concrete mixer and put a new trough apron down and, you know, sort of save people to, you know, to a point of stupidity. So were you approaching it more as a sprint than as a marathon? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I made some mistakes, uh, which I now look back on and laugh, uh, you know, look back on and laugh, but they seemed like they were the right idea at the time, you know, like, some of the some of the things we did then, and some of the stuff like the effort we went to building things, uh, you know. Now I look back and sort of laugh that you know that was probably a fairly short sighted thing, but we uh, we did have a lot of fun as well. It wasn't sort of you know there was lots of parties and you know it was a it was a pretty pretty lively and wild place. We had a lot of fun, and uh, you know. There, you know, there were some people that bloody busted their ass for Bliner. And, uh, there were a few always... of your staff that stayed, like during that, not when I was in the really early days, but there was, when I had gotten here, there were a few people that had been with you for the three seasons mm. longer. So, so it, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. And we, you it's know, we honestly thought we were bloody, we thought we were taming the Wild West. So we were excited. And, uh, you know, we, it was, um, you know, there was a, a fair bit of energy about it, and it was it was a fun time, but you know, very busy, um, you know, and overall pretty hard on hard on people. When do you think that started to change? So I reckon that I started to. I think it just as you mature, but the, the big thing that kind of really sort of got me on track was the arrival of Connie in my life with, with that. So she used to point out to me when, you know, when that was out of line or a bit too hard or unrealistic. And uh, You didn't I, always listen. I think I probably rarely listened initially. <laughs> but but <laughs> I, you know, 
after a while, the, the evidence started to mount and uh, it, it turned out Connie was right and that she just had a bit more of a balance about about how she went about things. And, uh, you know, she, you know, even as sort of more recent as five or six years ago, there's been things that you've said and you've said, well, like you've reaped the rewards of what you've sowed and, you you know, you you let that get that way, you know, like you created that. And uh, so, you know, Connie came along at the end of 12 and uh, became part of the team here at Liner. And just something, the culture just changed a little. And, uh, you know, we headed in a better direction. It's nice of you to say that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's get through to some of the memories about your nine and 13 years at Liner. Let's start off with some of the characters that you've had come through the gateway I imagine there's all so you've there has, had there's been some serious characters that um, yeah, okay. Um, so memorable people who've come through. There's been a lot of memorable people that yeah, who are still a big part of our life. They start as employees and they keep coming. Uh, they they'll continue through as friends after they leave here, or they become friends while they're here. So um, it's probably probably us um, starting on a sadder note, but we had. Um, a station cook, Trish, um, who she just, we got, we, she came to us just through, um, uh, uh, who is actually another person who started as an employee and is still a friend, um, Andy Bates, and his nanny, um, he's, like, we, we, we were having a lot of trouble trying to find a cook and we're sort of asking all of our networks and got everything else, but we can't find a cook and he just asked another Kiwi lady, um, do you know anyone who might want to cook on a station? And she said, actually, yeah, I do. And Trish didn't have a resume or anything like that. And I just got told his call this number and I, I called her and, um, said, you know, give me some phone numbers of people I can call or references for you. And, um, yeah, she flew over and I picked her up from, from Derby at the time we had Harrison in tow. So it was in 2018 and I took the truck in. Uh, and collected this crazy Kiwi, old, old Kiwi lady. Old hippie. Old hippie. She's very much a hippie essential oil toting crystal bird skull collecting <laughs> old hippie. And, tree and hugging. yeah, <laughs> tree hugging. She said, so that year it was a hard year for staff 2018 for us. And, um, I was having to work, um, a lot back in the stock camp with Harrison. And she sort of, um, while she was at stock camp, so the cook, They'll prepare them the meals and they'll take the you know all the crew out for the day. So she she would come along with us and bring Harrison along, um, along behind the mob while I, and you know while I had to be in the yards and helping Matt. And um, so yeah, she just sort of it's so funny. She's she swore like a trooper and and chain smoked, smoked and. She's probably the only person even I've ever, even around the kids, I've ever excused to smoke around my children. It's anybody else I would hung draw and quarter them, but Trisha just, it's funny, just the things that you just, yeah. And she was just uh, absolutely unreal with the staff and with Harry. Um, and then she and became, with and with us, she became, um, sort of a mother figure. Just a mother and- figure and like a stand in. We'd lost Matt's mum. The year before, and then we got this like crazy old Mary Poppins who would whip up a feed. And in her job, you know, she just it was effortless for her. She just everything was clean, everything was 
fine. The, the meals were good and then she would help me with Harry and she just, she, she, implanted herself in all of our hearts and stole everyone's and she dogs. Did. Stole everyone's dogs, yeah, her dog stealing ways as her brother used to always say. And um yeah, she just she became such a good friend of ours and she, to the point that um you know she, she was in her third season with us here at Blinder and she was coming on with us to Wavehill and she was incredibly excited about that and I was incredibly relieved that she was coming because she just the sort of person for us that you didn't have to, you knew that, you know, if she came up into the house and she overheard something, she was such a loyal person that she wasn't a gossip and there was just no BS with Trish. No, you didn't have to beat around the bush. You no. could just say, oi, Oi, that wasn't up to standard or that was no good or can you do it this way? And she would either do it or not. <laughs> but most of the time she'd go, yeah, right, bro. Like, but she was a yeah mother figure to all of us, especially me. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, she used to give me a, a hug occasionally or a yeah. boot up the ass when I, when she felt I needed it, and, and, it was, and vice versa. <laughs> yeah, it was just one of those things. So you know, and she was a real part of the family. Part of the family, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, a massive influence on our children. And um, yeah, so the, the sad thing about this story is that we lost Trish um, on the fourth of August. This year, so uh, a little over a month ago, six, sort of five weeks ago, she was supposed to be coming back this week and it was very, she went home, um, she hadn't been home uh, back to New Zealand in her time with us and um, she passed very, very suddenly. So the whole station has been rocked by her loss. Um, but also I'm so proud of the way our crew, our crew, we've got a very solid crew um Probably, yeah, since that 2018 was a, a particularly rough year for staff and then the, the next the next sort of three seasons or whatever it's been have been, we've been in a purple patch for staff. So the crew that Trish has had, um, there's about four guys that um, have been with us for three years or, two, you know, two or three years and are continuing on with us to Wavehill. So I just, I was so proud of the way they held themselves in um, in the event of Trisha's passing because we were all devastated. But they held they, – they were great, weren't they? They held space for each other. They were mature. These are like 18, 19, 20-year-old young men and mm. um, and who Trish used to whip into line and they just – Yeah, a couple of them were here when they were 15, 16. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just – I was just blown away by their maturity and I think that Trish would be so proud of them, um, how they've held themselves and, and supported each other. Um, and yeah, I guess she's probably a standout, particularly for me. Um, she sort of came on and as I was a young, you know, a, a young mum or a learning mum, maybe not a young mum, <laughs> learning mum. Um, and she was an early childhood teacher as well in a, in a past life. And yeah, she just, we, f- we feel her loss, um, significantly here at Blinder. And I think we will continue to. Um, but she was a very special person um, and always I think will be to quite a few of us here at Blina. Um So, yeah, she's very obviously noteworthy. Um, I'm just trying to think. There's been other people who've come through and that have, you know, there's people that surprise you, aren't there, Matt? There's people who come um, and they they start and you think, oh, I don't know if this, how this person's going to go or – and they and they surprise you, and they end up building careers, and they are still in the industry now. Mm, um, so no, it's great, you know. And you know, I think that 
we just feel very proud and privileged to have had a hand in some of these people's lives, mm. like at some point, like, you know, you these guys have gone on, they've come here as a, you know, not necessarily as a first year, but they've come here and have started here and they've got, they're in, they're running camps in the Territory or they've been running contract, you know, like. Or they've just become confident yeah. and uh, yeah. confident and great people. And it's yeah. just, you know, and it's just nice to know that you may have had some little, little sphere of influence in there in the, in the year that they, you know, worked in the stock camp with you. Yeah. So it's pretty, um, you know, and then they, the confidence they got from, you know, being sent off to go and, you know, do concreting jobs or boilermaking yeah. jobs and build things and problem solve and all those great skills that we love about working on stations, um, you know, to see them apply that in life, you know, it's just it's very rewarding. Because so, you're not just like as I, I think a lot of people say this and I say this quite often about stations, it's not just a job. It's an entire sort of for a while the people that you have here, when they are here, you li- they live, breathe, eat, sleep here everything and that you do become like a family and you know for some people it's not it's not for them and every station is not for every person but as your role in managing these people you're not just managing them in their job there's you know you have people come up and I know for both of us actually it might be for Matt and a Toyota on a ball run but you'll get people come up and knock on the door for a cup of tea or something's happened and it's not just your work life they don't just do their job and then go home this is their home for the year or the couple of years that they're here. And so you are more than their boss. You become some of them. You become a parent and a friend and a life. nurse, life coach, everything else in between because everybody brings their own sort of stuff with them and you do take that on whether you like it or not. Hey, Matt. That's right. Yeah, we get the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah, so, you do. You know, and there's some. And some you know, people you have to send on your on their way, and some people you you don't really want to send on your way, but you you have to because it's not right for them or for you. And but and then there are the, those special people who do stay and or who are yeah they are still part of our lives. Who surprised you the most out of the people that have come through? That who's somebody? That, <laughs> Connie's just pointed at Matt. <laughs> As I, I mean, you don't have to n- name them, but like, who did you think wouldn't last? The first week, oh, and then been, there's been plenty that I thought oh, I just don't think these people have really got it in them. Uh, to and then they're you know they they've gone on in the industry, and, yeah. and others you know like yeah. You know, so there's been there's been countless times of that where you know where initially you know they really challenged you, and we've had conversations like oh, how much longer do we let this person go on for? Do we do we send them them to give them their marching orders? Oh, we'll just wait a little longer. Um, and then they and then they come good, um, not necessarily adi- like attitude, but yeah, the attitude, or they grow up, or they pull their finger out, or mm. and then you know, there's some that you you know that you see all the potential in the world in, and then you, per- you know they persevere and they run a fuck and they persevere again, and you know you see if you don't give up on them, they they go really well, and uh, you know it's nice to know that you may have had a little little hand in it there somewhere, yeah. so. And I, I maintain that I've learnt so much about myself from managing people too. It's a two-way street. So, yeah. What know. works on someone doesn't necessarily work on someone else. Absolutely. You know, and I reckon, you know, I'm, I'm a heaps better person for having run people. I'm much yeah. more understanding of everything. You know, I sort of had my blinkers on, long, you know, when I first started managing yeah. and, and now, now I get it. We can't lie. There have been years where we, we both of us at separate times have been absolutely jaded. 
Like, why the hell are we doing this? Like, why? That's it. And then there's been oh gosh, other there's times been like really now when years. we where we couldn't be prouder. A- absolutely, so proud of our camp now. And but there have been years where, you know, you think you, when you have staff rolling in for for no, it's nobody's fault. It's just just the crop that you've got that year or for, for whatever. Where it's been difficult, and you've had staff coming through, and so therefore. Your um, well, you well, you when you've got people coming through in a, in a lot of people coming through in the same season, you are you're retraining and you're doing the same thing. You feel like you're on autopilot. Oh yeah. So you are retraining. Yeah, that's where I was getting. If you would have let me. <laughs> it is hard, you know. You do feel like this is the fifteen thousandth time that I've explained this thing. Yeah. And to have to explain it with the same energy is hard. And then so you know you feel like sometimes you're ripping people off. Um, you know, like it is hard to be, to be, to explain how to strain a loose wire in a fence for the, you know, hundredth time. Or how to work the yard. But, yeah, like, yeah. but that's, you know, if you, that's time to get out when you lose your passion for it. There are times when you're sorely tested and you're like, oh, I just can't be bothered explaining this stuff to this person. Like they don't listen or they don't want to learn or whatever. And then every now and they then, simply don't understand. You get a little crew that come along and who really care. Yeah, and they want to know what. Not only they, they're people who don't just ask what time's breakfast tomorrow. They say, "What are we doing tomorrow, and why?" And then they give you a whole new level of energy. Yeah. And uh, for that, I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from my crew. If I get a, if I've got a crew that want to learn, um, you know, I just find find my turbo charge. Tell me about some of the funny times you've had at Blina, and I'll preface this by saying, tell me about the appropriate time, appropriate stories, please. PG thirteen, work, health, and safety. Uh, but I mean, Connie, we can start. I mean, there's one that's coming to mind that involves you oh. and a lawnmower. So you oh, can yes. tell us that oh, harmless so one. I can tell harmless ones. <laughs> Matt, you, oh. you spend this time thinking of something that you actually can share. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know what year it was, but, um, in my early years here at Blina, we had, uh, what was it called? Greenfield Mower and Yellow this, Devil. The Yellow Devil, anyway, the Yellow Devil. And this thing was, so Mandy, um, was Matt's housekeeper before I, the years before I came to Blina. And so one of my first sort of part of the handover, um, with the grounds was her learning to tame the yellow devil. <laughs> and this thing was like, yeah, it was, I don't even know how old it was. I don't think it was as old as we thought it was, but it was sort of, yeah, this wretched um, ride-on mower. It had and a very hard, hard life. life like and, the, and we spent more time fixing it, like literally 10 times more time fixing it. Than than I actually spent mowing lawns. So sort of take up like you You'd mow for 10 minutes and then you'd be fixing something. I like how Matt's hour. talking like he actually rode the yellow devil. So I, I don't did. know how much time you spent on the yellow devil. But you, you used to spit oil all over your feet and you have to keep moving because otherwise you'd get like sort of completely surrounded by a plume of smoke and it would like the accelerator pedal was sort of sticky so it would like lurch forward and then there's you know a steering arm one of the steering arms was like held on by a bit of wire which used to come loose sometimes so you'd like lose control of one wheel or get bogged and then you'd be out there swearing because you've got a limited amount of time to do the lawns in and it's all gone up up the creek without a paddle and 
you know that if you don't get the lawn done, you're going to have to deal with the push mower. And anyone who's seen any aerial photos of Blinder, there's a significant amount of lawn. So, yeah, there's one I think it was during the wet season and I decided to – well, you'd have to park it against something because somehow, I don't know how, it was actually I think we all believed it was possessed by the devil. I parked it against a tree because if you didn't – we couldn't turn it off because at that time I think we had to start it with a screwdriver or turn it off with a screwdriver or something, something. Um, and so I parked it against the tree and left it idling to go and get a drink of water. And then I look around and this thing is actually on fire. It's like there's flames coming out of it and I've gone to like try and put it out with the with the hose and it's it's an oil fire, so obviously it <laughs> doesn't. And then like I've screamed up, like not literally screamed, but driven up here and Maverick as I just drove up here so fast as I'm panicking because I know all wet season I'm going to have to mow these lawns with a push mower. And it wasn't one of those cool push mowers with the levers that like would kind of bring itself along. You had to actually physically push it. Great way to keep your wife incredibly fit. Yes. So I was panicking because I didn't want to be sweating and doing the lawns. Anyway, Matt probably was quite happy. He probably rigged it that way. But, yeah, so my lawnmower spontaneously combusted. People, I have been accused of setting it on fire, but I can assure everybody that I didn't actually set it on fire. It was a natural natural end to its life. But what, ha- what happened after it caught fire, Connie? What Did you get a – tell us about the replacement. I did. I got a brand new – Blinder, not me, but kind of me. Um, yeah, brand new John Deere mower. And actually, we've only just replaced that mower. So mm. he, that mower had a very good innings, and I was very protective over that mower for a long time. In recent years, I had to forego, um, forego control of my lawn mower. Although John, Johnny Nicholson, he, he was, he was the John Deere man while he was here. One of the boys who now drives for RTA. Um, he he's he loved even he's even got had a few stints on the lawn mowers even as when he's visited he's hopped on and done the lawns hasn't he old Johnny mm, he loved it yeah Razi Razi full stop so Razi Razi was this um, part indigenous lad from Halls Creek who's worked on and off for us for probably three years yeah. and he's just a real comedian a real class clown um, and. He he's looks one of a lot Harrison's like he favourite purse people. Harrison's favourite people, mostly because he's always got lollies on <laughs> and, uh, and you know, he's hiding somewhere in his yeah. clothes and he's able to bloody conjure up one from behind his ear, Harry's ear at any time. Anytime, literally. And he he looks a lot like Snoop Dogg, almost <laughs> a dead ringer for Snoop Dogg. Um, and he would be – he used to love sort of finding – old cattle's pelvis bones and then wearing them over his head like a Indian sort of matrimonial like mask and he'd be cantering around a mob of cattle with a, with a mask on his face which was like a pelvis bone of a cow, like one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Or um, chasing wallabies like on his them. horse, lapping wallabies around the, the bush on his horse. Um just super fun guy. Generally, just such a gorgeous man. Like, just so funny. Just yeah, he's great, and always, always up for a joke. But there's so much banter that goes on in stock camps that 
job. It's hard to pin down a particular yeah, people. Yeah, it, w- it was a fairly unfair question yeah. uh, because you've got 13 years of memories and yeah. pretty much every day you can probably qualify for. Yeah. I do encourage everyone to go back to episode three, though, if you haven't heard it, where Connie recounts the story of Matt's proposal and then also trying to plan the wedding with Matt. Yeah. Uh, you've also done another short story episode about low-stress wife handling, oh, yes. which is uh, your experience so Matt trying to tale. Yes, but Matt <laughs> trying to manage you like he's managing his, his pregnant mouth. cattle. <laughs> so many a funny story have come out from Blina on our website and podcast. So go, definitely go back and find those. What about the most? I mean, we've we've sort of touched on this already, but the most sad times at Blina. Obviously, Trishy is right up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trisha is right up there. And then uh, you know, just only. Only you know a couple of weeks before Trish passed, um, I shot shot this horse of mine called Cavalier, which was a pretty sad one for yeah, me. Sad. Um, sad for me too, but yeah, it was, it was it was the first horse I broke in in the Kimberley when I first came up to work at Meter when I was eighteen years old, and uh, he ended up here at Bliner in the time between me being away from the company and coming back to manage Bliner, and I actually had no idea that he was here. And uh, we ran the horses in in March and start drafting them up to get mustering. And uh, I was like, shit, that's bloody Cavalier. And I, you know, had a look at his brand and I'd remembered his brand. He's probably looking at you like, hello. Yeah. And uh, it was just a horse with a massive heart. Not the greatest, not the greatest camp draft horse, but unbelievable. He got a few rounds. He did. And uh, not with me on the But he, but he, he was incredible at chasing a beast in, in the bush and absolutely fearless to the point of recklessness. So yeah. <laughs> pretty wild ride. Have gave um, me a, few, a black eye but, and a few scars but he was, chasing wieners. We've got a lot of clean skin cattle, in, you know, yarded here and a lot of bullocks out of the river and just an He's absolute He's had absolutely weapon. no fear. He was just – but then you put it – like so he'd get an experienced rider on him and he'd just go like – what does your dad say? Go like a stabbed rat. Yeah, and then the um, and then you know, and then you, you put, put a kid on him, kid on him or beginner riders. Like I taught so many people how to ride on Cav. Yeah, like and then you'd get one of us on him, and he'd be like, "Rattle, buckle up, let's go." Yeah, he literally t bone. Like I remember, um, walking paddock off their feet. Yeah, walking yeah, paddock, bum and clean skin ball off. His yeah, feet. just smash it. And uh, you know, it was it was a weapon, but it the was. kindest soul ever. Beautiful, you know, like buddy. The, you know, so that was pretty sad. But he, you know, he lived out his days, and we and so many staff like from who've worked here at Bliner, everybody knew Cap. Yeah, that's right. He was always the one we took to the radios for yeah. the station challenge, station challenge and you know, all that sort of stuff. So he in, was, his, in his retirement years, we'd often put him in with the broodmares when they're about to foal, and yeah, with the always with the weanlings, like with the with the baby horses. And and he was always used as a dolly horse for breaking, breaking in, and, in, and you know, he would have broken in like you know. Oh. 50 Most, or 60 horses here, yeah, so, yeah. you know, being used as a dolly horse for that. A, real, like those one, one in a million sort of horses. And I remember, like, getting really protective of Cav, one young, like, sort of Jillaroo from Mita saying, oh, that's such an ugly horse. I'm like, don't say that. Can't say that about Cav. But he wasn't yeah, very beautiful, but he was, he was a, he was beautiful. He was a champion. So yeah, was, that, that was sad. Um, yeah, it was. It was Devastating. Had a beer with him and said goodbye. Yeah, 
So I swear, by putting down any of those those workhorses, it's, yeah, it's, right. it's a yeah, responsibility always. we have as a as a, when you've got animals that you have to make those hard calls sometimes. Um, for their, you know, you'd rather that than them sort of get stuck and mm. and be suffering. It's just certainly not something you want. While that's obviously a very tough thing to go through, like you just said, the decision itself is perhaps not necessarily hard because you know what needs to be done and what's in the yeah, best interest the of the animal. Yeah. So what would you say has been the most challenging or some of the most challenging times at Bliner? I think that, you know, we've had some challenging times, um, fire, so, you know, things always kind of happen. They always – you get a run of bad stuff. So, you know, you'll have ore trouble and, you know, you'll be up all night pumping water and chasing water and then you'll have – then the generator will blow up and then the, you know, the everything sort of happens in key a run. Key personnel will quit in the middle of key it Key personnel will move on or, or someone or, – or they'll, you know, they'll have a family tragedy. They'll yeah. have to go to attend to or something and, um, you know, all these things compound, and then you know you'll have um, have a couple of lightning storms or deliberately lit fires just at these terribly inopportune times, or well, you know, and then, it, then they'll, you'll be roaring off to the fire, and you'll notice a horse stuck in a fence, or you know, like there's it never, you know, some you you just like Christ, what what have I what have done, done to you know to deserve this? So it always sort of seems that you know. No, no boars, you know, ever break down on the start of the week. Like, and, you know, if you've got a thing tied, like planned for a big weekend off for all the crew, something will happen something to happens. try and, you know, throw a spanner in that works. And that's so, where the buck stops with us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like, you know, people, people hate having their days off taken off them, you know, and, uh, so that's where you got to do the, you got to ban up and go and sort it out. So, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happens. So yeah, they're challenging. Um, you know, we've had challenging times when we've struggled to find good people. Um, yeah. you know, and, you know, we've, we've enjoyed mostly pretty good markets, but we, you know, on the, after the live, live trade there, we, you know, ban, we had, we had some ordinary markets for 18 months and it was kind of, you know, you sort of hoped things would ride out, but you knew that, Things were going to be tight and tough, and all the jobs you, you know, all the sort of capex stuff that you wanted to get into, you knew that was just going to have to be on the back burner on the slow boil for a while. So, and uh, people that like getting things done, like Connie and I, bloody hard to be on the slow burn. What year did you say you came to Bliner again? Two thousand nine. So you'd been here. It was would have been your third year when the ban happened. Yeah. So still fairly young, fresh. Yeah. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, that must have been a, a bit of a blow. Absolutely. So it was just a we, – we sort of, you know, you knew it was knew it was coming, um, you know, a little bit in advance. And, you know, we'd sort of unloaded what we could. and we We, um, you know, it was a fair blow, you know, and then you've got sort of staff asking, have we still got our jobs? And it's like, yes, like, you know, buddy's son's still coming up tomorrow. We're, you know – Cattle still need watering, and we've got to pull wieners off, and we've got brand calves, and you know, yeah, it was, was a challenging time. But uh, you know, I sort of always believed that you know, my father had said to me when I was you know quite young, he said economics always outweighs politics, and uh, you know, things will things will rectify. 
So another challenge was uh, when my wife Connie here had a fairly major head injury that she sustained in a horse fall. So essentially she was doing a very simple job in a laneway, um, riding a quiet horse, nothing untoward, and as they yarded a mob of cattle, a young horse, you know, one of the guys jumped off and, uh, you know, jumped off his horse and Connie reached down to grab its reins and the horse pulled back and instead of letting go, she sort of hung on and she'd just been working a horse and the girth was a little bit loose, which was like a no-no for an experienced rider. And uh, her, she slid around the side of this quiet horse and it went a little bit berserk and uh, chucked her onto her head. And as Mick says, in the hardest part of the laneway, in the hard bit of ground, and um, gave her, you know, she was sort of temporarily knocked out, and then came came up sort of groggy, and uh, the head stockman brought her back to me and said, "Oh, she's not right. She's bloody, you know, she's she's not in a good way." And I was shoeing horses in the yards, and I said, "All right, go chuck her up the house, and I'll be up there, you know, just go drop her off up there and give her a glass of water. I'll be up there when I'm done here." And uh, she called on the radio about 10 minutes later and saying, Matt, I can't see, I can't see. And uh, it's like, oh, I've got to rip up there. And she was, you know, sort of in and out of consciousness. She had, it was quite clear to me then that she, it had been a fairly serious knock. Um, and I, I put the torch in her eyes and saw that one pupil wasn't dilating properly and uh, grabbed, got called the guys and, you know, got them to bundle her in a car and I grabbed a couple of things and got them to call the RFDS and uh, organise an ambulance to meet us on the highway en route to Derby. Um, that was a pretty pretty nerve-wracking drive. I was sort of trying to drive quickly without being sort of reckless and trying to get to this ambulance and the whole time was I was trying to keep her awake. So she was fading in and out of consciousness and, you know, lolling around in the cab of the thing and, quite serious I you know I was sort of quite concerned and uh, feeling a little bit guilty about not taking it seriously straight away um, got her into the ambulance and also trying to reassure her so she was sort of almost a bit panicky she knew she wasn't good and um, you sort of know but you don't you're not really obviously not con- really not with it conscious yeah and you sort of know that something's wrong and you see people looking at you and they, something's wrong but you don't you can't really grasp reality we got her in the um in the hospital, and then they decided they needed to fly her to Broome for CAT scans. Long story short, they flew her there and saw there was a bleed on the brain, and they uh, RFDSed her immediately to Royal Perth, and they were basically they had the clock set, waiting to see if anything, if it would uh, start to subside, or they were going to drill into her head and the, relieve the pressure. And I was told this. I'm by myself in Broome, and they've, they've sort of told me, and you sort of, sort of quite groggy and concussed that you know your brain is bleeding and if it doesn't stop we're going to have to drill into your head and that was scary like I do actually vaguely remember that um being told that if it doesn't we can't stop the bleeding we'll have to operate on you and then you think god that's right so it's all starting to become pretty serious and suddenly you're like high-tailed right out of Broome Hospital back into the same plane that had pretty much halted the brakes on the airstrip and then turned around, as I found out later after talking to one of the nurses. And then, yeah, they, take, they took me down to Royal Perth. And luckily I have family. Both of us have got family in Perth, so. 
Mm. So, and I flew down there, and uh, it was a pretty nerve-wracking couple of days, and then things started to look okay, and uh, she started to come good. However, the short-term memory loss was very significant. So I, you know, right now I think if, unless you know Connie really well, known her prior accident, you'd think she's absolutely fine. Man, you her both know that she's only about eighty-five to ninety percent of what she was. Yeah. So her short-term memory, Connie used to be incredibly sharp. Um, you could sort of call out ten things over your shoulder as you were walking away from the shed in the morning, and she remember all of them, no worries. And now, you know, five or I six things, you, you, yeah, you have to. I just have to write it down. And the time for me after that um, that period of time for me struggling. I struggled a lot with like having that reduced capacity because it's frustrating because you know that you should be onto this and it put a lot of strain on our marriage and not only our marriage but also our professional life. Yeah. Because Matt, as I've sort of spoken in previous podcasts, you sort of you do depend on each other and they depend on be expecting me to do things the way I was before and I would be expecting myself to do things and I literally he would say, "What about this or whatever it was?" and I. You didn't tell me about that. He's like, Connie, I told you. And I just clean would not be able to remember. Mm, and it was hard. And, and then, I'm quite a perfectionist. I beat myself up a lot about that. Yeah, that no, was a very hard time for us. And it, it took years. So it sort of mm. started off being really bad. And then it got better slowly. Got better and better. And then it just plateaued. Yeah. And, you know, it's fine now, but it took Connie a long time to accept that it was a thing and that she wouldn't write lists for a long time because she I'm was fine. like, I don't she need didn't to need to write before. lists and she didn't them. feel. And it took her a long time to go, okay, I'm not, as, you know, my short-term memory isn't what it used to be, so now I need to adapt. That's a hard thing to do. You so see, well, there's her. whiteboards in the kitchen here now and got, there's... You know, whiteboards and notes and lists and, you know, and she's had to learn to do all of that yeah. and accept that that's now her life. Yeah which has been challenging. So. And there's so much they don't know. And at the time, you, you just tell the doctor, I'm fine, I, we can manage my workload, it's no problem, just, write, just sign me off, just sign the piece of paper, just let me go back home, let me go back to work. And 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 you do. So you sort of – there's so much they don't know about head injury. So I never really got anything like the post-concussion syndrome or anything. I didn't get ongoing headaches or even though mum did say I was talking pretty slow for, but you, for and a you, while. But you were lethargic yeah, and tired. Yeah, absolutely. For, for, over a year, yeah. you know, like you were, you know, it certainly affected you and you, yeah. were, you were easily irritated and, yeah. you know, a little bit negative and it, I sort of really noticed and it was, yeah. so that was a, I don't think we were engaged, were we? We are married. We were married, you yeah. know, and I was like, for a while there, I was like, shit, this, I'm not sure how this is all going to pan out, like, I don't, if, if we have kids, she's not <laughs> going to remember not. where, you know, like she was quite bad, like I was like. <laughs> she can't remember all the things on the list, she's dead to me. Dead to me. No, well, like, I was like, you know, if we have kids, you're not going to remember. You know. I put it down for a sleep somewhere. I don't know where I put it, though. Exactly. You don't know where they are, what I've done. It was just like all these things, and you're like, shit, I don't, I don't know if I'm, you know, ready to be married to someone who's, you know, ment- mentally incapacitated. And it was like, so that was, it was a, that was a real challenge for us. Yeah. It was a tough thing. And also, it's not something that we really ever put out there. Like, a lot of people didn't even know about my head injury. So, it was sort of something that you struggle with in private. Um, it wasn't because I didn't have a massive, like, I didn't have, go into an induced coma or I have an operation because they said, 
they managed to stamp, not stamp the blade, the blade. Yeah, they managed to control the blade. So I didn't, it wasn't a major, well, it was, but it wasn't a, a big, long stay in hospital. I think I was in Perth, in Perth for about two or three weeks. Mm. And, and, but it wasn't, some people had no idea that I even had an accident. No massive scar, no big No, that's bandage. right. It's, and that, I mean, it's not, not dissimilar to many mental illnesses. And it was, it's something that you struggle with in your own brain. And physically, I was fit and fine and healthy, but mentally, it took an enormous toll coming to terms with that, um, with that change in, 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 your, in my capacity. Um, and it's not something, yeah sort of really think about that much anymore but yeah when you look back that was a huge challenge for um quite a while but it was quite a private private one that yeah 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 very very privileged to have you share that on the Mm -hmm. podcast though um and i will let us move on to something lighter now Mm -hmm. but before i I had just thought of one more challenge but i won't make you go through it because you've already discussed it back Mm -hmm. in episode three and something that's just popped back into my mind is the challenge of becoming a mum yep. when you're so used to being in the camp. Yeah. You spoke very candidly about that back in ap- episode three and what it was like to step back from yeah. being on the front line. Um, you know, we're number three child, we're number three child nearly in and you just become, I think as you become more you accustomed to your role and uh, as I've said previously, we've got such a great crew here that makes it certainly a lot easier that you know that you're not sort of, not that you're sitting back but um, that there's no struggles out in the camp or anything like that, which you sort of feel that's a good thing and a bad thing. You're not sort of needed anymore. But um, I guess the harassing is older now and we can, we do more things, as Matt said earlier. We It's a different, like, it's a sort of a different role that I have now. I can take, we are in a position at Blind, I can take Harrison, can ride his pony, we can go out tailing wieners, he comes out on the masters, he comes on ball runs, both the kids come on ball runs. It's, yeah, he sort of, it just changes and you just, you just accept that, that change. And it's been, we've been in a very good position here at Blinder that we've been in a position that we can. Uh, We're not so flat tilt things, not that they cruise along by any means on a station, but as far as stations go, it it is, it's a great um, work-life balance that we've got here at the moment. And even though it was a challenge initially, um, yeah, you settle in to really enjoy um, the privilege of being able to raise your children in such um, and being able to be present, so present with them um, and being able to raise your children in such a great environment on stations. So on a lighter note, let's talk about, you know, it's, it's got a different name everywhere you go, whether it's you owe someone a carton <coughs> or a spit tin or I don't even know what other names there are out there for it, but some of the colossal, we're not going to swear on this podcast, I don't want to beat myself up, but the colossal muck-ups, it rhymes with muck-ups that, that have happened, whether they be funny or serious, maybe go for a funny yeah. one so we can lighten the, um, so, the tone. So it was only a couple of months ago I actually washed a red shirt with uh, a lot of Connie's pinks and that was, you know, catastrophic <laughs> stuff up. It you, was your red shirt with a lot of coins. So did you just wreck? Did you make he, he wrecked everything in the washing machine? I'm really quite particular about the way things are washed. Yeah, I get afraid to. Yeah, I threw a bunch of stuff in the machine today, and I was like, I'm going to hang it out and pull it off the line before she knows I've done it. That's how I go. Now, <laughs> would this? And, it, and if it changes colour, I'd throw it away. 
I would. You've got burn bins right out the front of your house. I'd be setting that on fire. What was this red shirt by any chance won by Red Range Stock Supplements? No, I have no idea. <laughs> no, no, no. Not going to drop rusty in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are your shirts and not colour fast? No, I suppose one of my, um, I suppose one of my uh, big stuff ups, I suppose, was uh, when we built our new set of cattle yards. So. We knew it was sort of up out of the swamp enough to be the right spot for the yards. I've been looking at that for about three or four years. I knew that area was okay. Um, however, it was virgin country. Virgin black soil. Well, yeah, parts yeah. of it were black. And then we were, we were, it was virgin country that hadn't been sort of compacted by animals. And the first, I look at it now, it's quite funny, but the first yard It wasn't up, not funny at the time. We had a we yarded some we had a boat That's date terrifying. and we had about three inches two nights before. Had really late season rain. Mm. So it was sort of like borderline possible that we'd be able to even get trucks out the road. And you know, the first truck that came in had hay on it and it got buried yeah. in the turnaround, like because it was all One virgin. Side. So it'd been sheeted and uh it just dropped into this water, you know, to the to the virgin ground, which it had. Yeah, sort of like had a crust on the top, but underneath yeah. it was just so it's still never, so spongy. Never yeah. been compacted. No. That's right, exactly. So so then we've had to pull all the bales out and get this truck out and things aren't looking too good. We think we, we sort of write that, um, you know, then we had to put cattle in that yard to draft them. So, we, we've, so this was a couple of days in. before, big mob of steers and, I actually wanted to get a video, from, like a photograph from the helicopter um, of the you cattle. You actually also had just had your appendix out. Yeah, that's right. You I just had my appendix removed and I was in us. a car, in a, in a ute, and I hadn't been able to do much because I wasn't able to leave many of the tracks because it was so wet, you know. So I'd been frustrated all day and I just had my, got back from an appendix operation and I was like, oh, this is all going good. We've got all these cattle, about sort of 1,800, 2,000 steers going into the lane. And we've got them walking down across the causeway, like through the water. They swim over the creek into, to go to the new yards. And I was like, great, I'm going to get a photo, land and pick me up. And then uh, a head stockman who... So you need your bop, bop, bop yeah, button. that's right. A head stockman started, you know, he actually had a bit of a stutter. And uh, he was stuttering on the radio. So he could see the lead had started, they'd, you know, a couple of hundred had gone into the yard and the virgin country just sort of gave Opened away. Up. And started like bogging cattle in it. So, so we're behind. So essentially, how it sort of works: you've got someone who normally filters the lead into the yards to keep them moving, and the rest of us sort of are behind, just keeping the tail coming through. And normally, what happens is they just filter through. Mm. It didn't happen this time. So, so we got about. I think we must have had about a third of the mob in the yard, and then it was like a few started bogging. So it was like, oh shit, right? We're going to have to try and yard them from the other so side. We're trying to hold them to stop them from turning around in the laneway on tired horses. Yeah, that have been what you know, slushing through the mud slushing all day. Through the mud. It's my most is a huge paddock. And then I, I'd we done didn't have the um, bike in those days. I'd done the. Uh, so I was like, ah, oh, shit, let me out. So I got out and I pushed someone off their horse and I cut the fence and. We're like, right, are we going to take them round through here? And we got about another half of what was left yarded in from that way before it was sort of, you, before that started to give way too. Yeah. So the cattle that were in the yard were okay. We cut this brand new were, fence. Yeah, so we cut the lane back. here and we brought them in through the cooler there and, and then we've had to go and yard right the last of them up through um, 
through the, the loading ramp, yeah. basically through the gate next yeah. to the loading ramp and those two around the front there. So we've got all these young cattle. We're, Steers, oh, green crew, first oh, job of the year. Yeah. We've got bloody helicopters and, you know, stuff going everywhere in the mud and we get these cattle we in had there. To, we had to lap them around, like ring them in the freeway. What's the turnaround now? And, you know, I, I, in hindsight, I probably should have said to the exporter, we just can't go yet. It's too wet. It's like, we're gonna, you know, we're going to have to hang back. And so that's what we do now. We well, don't, we're so keen to yard up into the new Yeah, yeah, that's right. We're keen to do it and we, you know, fill the contract and the boat must sail and all that. And now we just don't, if on. there's mud on the road, we don't truck. Like it was yeah. animal welfare standards. But on top know. of that, so we got them yarded, process weighed, everything. No, but that's then, the other thing yeah. with the yarding. We had to, we actually had to, um, Went back to the old yards. No, no, but we we had to use the yards differently. Yeah. So we actually had to put panels yeah, up in the yard to feed them back through the other way. So it's like this. That was kind of a bit of an amusing uh, thing. We had to put up about thirty panels in this magical new yard so we could draft the cattle in reverse to stay up on the high ground. That was some so some of the backyard had got a bit soggy, so we wanted to work the cattle on the high ground. So that was funny. Then we had to get them out of that yard, which was a show. You know, we had to put down pallets and yeah, boardwalks. and just getting them out was just so stressful. <laughs> and then we had to yard them into the old, 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 the old horse yard. Now the horse yard's here at the homestead, but so they were the original cattle yards. So we had to cut all these fences to get the trucks back in there. And, you know, we just ploughed up all this stuff to turn it into horse coolers, like the old turnaround. Anyway, we've sort of done all this to get these we cattle had out. We to truck them out of that yard. We did. We trucked them out of the we horse yard. We trucked them out of the horse yard. So, sort of, just... anyway, at the moment, it was, you know, I think one of the truck drivers must have been said something like, why'd you build that yard in the fucking swamp? And the storm cloud above me <laughs> just grew, like lightning <laughs> so, flashes. So, yeah, anyway, but I was like, and now, you know, now you can drive out of there after 200 mils. It's all bloody, you but know. getting those cattle out, all the road trains, we had to stiff bar them out. All the road trains got bogged. That's right. So we had, we had to, we had to the use a, We had to, you know, grader and bulldozer and then, you know, we had five road trains all hooked up, all hooked stiff up bars. Together, stiff you know, bar to get them out. To get them out of the thing. And I remember... um yeah, we we got one. The first truck had got you bogged, and we were just like, so it was a it was a full mission, you know, like the whole thing was a big debacle. And you know, now in hindsight, I thought we were, you know, we we're doing the right thing. But in hindsight, we should have said, hey, no. we're going to hang back a, cu- a week. So I'm sorry about that. Like your boat's just going to have to wait or whatever, yeah. you, you know, because we're we can't deliver. It's too wet. But uh, so that I'd say that's a big fuck up. That but was it was it was quite fun. Um, like it was, it was the quite animals amusing. were all fine. Everything was fun. Everything like, was amusing. We all had a big, big laugh. Like Afterwards, know, obviously yeah. not around Matt at the time because he was just so like fuming. Yeah, but it was you know you had to put panels in it and you couldn't even get a hay truck to the yard and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, now that the, the ground's time, all hard up, end of story, no worries. So we never had yeah. an issue since. Yeah. It was just that one first yarding after three inches of rain two nights before. It was just, it was madness. Yeah. Anyway. No, what about, do it now. what about you, Connie? Is there anything in particular that you've done that springs to mind? <laughs> Aside from agreeing to join Central Station many months ago. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I'm just trying to think myself, but. Yeah, I'm sure. Never poisoned anyone's. No, served raw killed food. a lot of plants. Uh. I have killed a lot of plants. I'm not a very good gardener yeah, at all. I have killed a lot of plants. Quite an understatement. Probably <laughs> one of the worst gardeners <laughs> in the country. Well, she oh, set a lawnmower on fire. <laughs> I so set a lawnmower on fire. I'm, I can mow a lawn. And that's about it. 
<laughs> so it's got retake it all live. Um, just trying to think. Um, I'm not sure. Other than that, you're quite perfect. Oh, that's very oh, – you've redeemed yourself. Um, okay. Suck up. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't really think of anything else. But that's all right. You'll be back on the podcast. Some stage. Third time's uh, a charm. You know, and I've, yeah. and I've pretty well run over all of our dogs. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually. By, by accident. But, by yeah, uh, by accident. Yeah, Ross ran over Sunny. Yeah, the dogs had to – although we haven't lost any touch wood. Um, my dog's out there now. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't. Oscar hasn't been run over. Yet. Not yet. But yet. We've spent a lot of money with um, with broom vets on our dogs. <laughs> a ridiculous amount of money on our dogs. Yeah, ridiculous. And, like, our dogs are not – everyone who knows us, our dogs are not well-bred dogs. They're, like, camp dogs. They are camp dogs. Yeah. yeah. Well, Gypsy is actually a camp dog. She's – yeah. They're absolute bitches. Yeah. Anyway, they've been, been keeping the uh, – Keeping Bruce. You've been keeping Dave Morell afloat. And Bryce Moran afloat for a long time. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. What about. I want each of you to answer this. You can answer it together or separately, but the biggest achievement or the most memorable achievement from your time here at Bliner? For me, um, the top of the list is marrying Connie and having the family with her. You don't have to be a sucker. You know. At the end of the day, you get you're not really going to be remembered as a great station manager, you know. In in the fullness of time, you'll be remembered as a good dad or not, and a good husband or good not. Person. And uh, you know, I so I think that's number one. The second, immensely proud of the, like all of the infrastructure at Liner and all that we've achieved here in that regard and the standard. And thirdly, the the cattle herd. The cattle herd and the horse plant, we're just super proud of yeah. where we started and where we've got to. You know, they're productive, they're bloody profitable and they're, you know, seriously straight saleable line and, you know, we're, we're really proud of the proud of that. So that sort of sums it up for me. Yeah, I think I have to agree with, um, with Matt in that it's a bit boring of me to disagree with my husband. I don't often just simply agree with my husband. But I think um, over yeah, the past almost a decade since I've been here at Bliner, we've certainly learned a lot about ourselves and our relationship and our marriage, um, and that has grown significantly, um, and us as people have as well. And raising a family is a huge part of that um, and learning to be a better person. I think having children makes you in some ways <laughs> – a little bit more impatient, but overarchingly a more um, probably more compassionate person. Like now we sort of a better think, and more tired person. Yeah, more tired person. That's for sure. Um, I think you also, from my point of view, treat your staff. Not that I never, not that I didn't treat them with compassion by any stretch of the imagination, but you sort of think how would how would I would want someone to treat my child if they were in that situation. Um, so you do probably react a little differently, a little less hard than I probably would have nine years ago. Um, uh, so, yeah, like having raised and, – and I'm immensely proud of um, what we have achieved here at Bliner as a team um, professionally. Yeah, horses in particular, in the early years, I put a lot of work into the horse plant alongside Matt. Um, but for me, mostly is our family. And um, and being able to raise our kids into decent people, and and as Matt said, 
yeah, okay, you can you can your professional life is one thing, but when all else falls away, you've got your family, and that I think for both of us is just such a huge. That's what drives us, and drives me is my family. Connie, I was waiting for you to say that you were that your biggest achievement was featuring on the front and the back of the Central Station fishing show. Oh. <laughs> but okay, cool. Noted. No worries. Harrison and Imogen and Matt Trump, the fishing shirt. Oh, well, okay, I see where I stand. We're, we're almost at the end, I promise, and you can go to bed. Uh, what has been the most unexpected moment or lesson Something that you just you never saw coming, you just didn't expect to happen or to learn. Besides from me coming into your lives, <laughs> definitely never saw that one coming. I don't know. Just I, I probably touching a bit on the family note a little bit. Like I think after thirteen years of employing people, it's very easy to see people who've come from a good family environment and, mm. and people that haven't. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, how much, how important, like, you know, how much of a sort of head start it gives those people that have been fortunate enough to come from a great family environment yeah. that they sort of hit the ground running and with so much confidence. Confidence. And, confidence and just trust in that it'll be okay. And, uh, you know, I look back now at all the people we've employed over the years and people we've met and it's just, you know, I'm like, gee, it is so important to do a good job as a parent. Yeah. You know, um, to be a good mother or a good father is such an important job. Yeah. Um, you know, you can you can give your kids a hell of a good start. Mm. So I, you I, can give your kids. There's things that you can buy them toys and horses and all the rest of it, but you, your time is the most important thing, and and that they know that they're loved. Um, and I suppose it's, it's a, I suppose it is never it's not so much an unexpected lesson, but. Um, Super important it's lesson such an for, important for us, lesson and for especially for us. busy people. Like yeah. you know, we're busy, and uh, the need. Like I now really see the need to spend time with your kids. Yeah, uh, and and I probably I knew I was meant to. I didn't know why and how yeah, important and it was. How crucial it really is, and, and I, I agree with Matt. There's so many times that we've yeah, you see people and they've come from. Good, not, not good families, but loving families. And yeah, we're not trying to judge you. We're just family. saying people that have been loved. You can see them and they feel valued because that's where you first feel valued is by your mum and dad. Um, but I suppose adding to that unexpected, unexpected lesson or not something you ever sort of go to, I guess having a, a compassion for people and I guess I, I don't know if it's, as you get older or having children or experience or maybe all of those things, um, you sort of, yeah, you are maybe kinder to our staff, kinder to ourselves. Um, for me, I, swear, and as, I guess making time for yourself and making time for your family is um, a big lesson that we've learned, I suppose, as a young person. Or I, suppose we have, we're never, I was never here as a single person, but you just think you can do it all and, and, and go, 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 and rush, 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 and you don't – it's it's hard to take time for yourself on, on places like this, and I, I think – and now it's not necessarily for yourself. It is taking time for your family and for what – it's not just all about the job anymore. It's, um, yeah, it's – you have your priorities definitely change. 
and whether that not, I don't know if that's unexpected, but I think when you come here as a 23-year-old or a 24-year-old, it's not something you're really thinking about as you take on a role like this. You're sort of thinking about maybe your own ego and the things you can do and all the things you can achieve, and that's just something that, yeah, that has, yeah, I guess it is unexpected that we have achieved. It becomes so important. You may have already answered the final question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Looking back at your time at Bliner, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned? I think I've, I think we've covered it. Yeah, covered it. Be kind to yourself and be kind to other people because when people come to you, you don't necessarily know why they're here. Sometimes the reasons that they're here, you don't actually know until they're actually here. They're running from something or there's something for whatever reason and um, you don't know someone else's journey. And I think that I, I know I've been guilty of being probably hard on people. I probably would agree with, yeah, you are. Being known to be a bit hard. hard on people. and um, um, Yeah, you don't know where someone's come from or why they're here or, or what they're hoping to get out of it. And I think if you just treat people with a little bit of compassion and a bit of kindness, and that's something that, yeah, probably I've learnt evolved into now I'm like a station mum on a few different fronts um but yeah that's been a big lesson be kind not only to other people but particularly be kind to yourself Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work station work and agribusiness across Australia View current jobs, advertise a position, or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au, where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.